Asshole Cord is a bi-weekly podcast in which a group of lifelong friends choose a controversial public figure and examine their history through available public records and various publications to determine if that person is as much of an asshole as the general public suspects. We rate the subjects on a not-so-scientific scale, ranging from Mr. Rogers to Hitler, 1 to 11, and average out the three scores in the end for our final number. Just a reminder, our judgment has no legal weight, is strictly an opinion, and is subject to change at any time especially in the case of new evidence. It shouldn't be taken seriously. So, just don't. America loves hearing the personal details of young, beautiful people. It's why entire networks like E! and MTV exist. It's why the Kardashians are a multi-billion dollar business empire. And if you can sell billions of dollars worth of stuff based on the mundane details of a family of relatively beautiful people, it stands to reason that people would be even more interested in a story more salacious than some amateurish sex tape or celebrity marriage. This reality likely explains the draw that was the Scott and Lacey Peterson story. If you don't remember it exactly, in 2003, Scott was accused of murdering his pregnant wife, and it was kind of a big deal at the time. In the same exact time as the build-up and execution of the Second Iraq War, the Peterson case received nearly as much press and airtime as the aforementioned conflict, which cost hundreds of thousands of lives and changed global politics forever. Why? Perhaps, as I mentioned, it's because it involved two attractive, relatively well-to-do young people at the start of their adult lives, or perhaps it's because it's easier for humans to digest tragedy on a smaller, more personal scale. But enough of the philosophical ruminations and on to the more pressing and quantifiable question. Is Scott Peterson an asshole? Of course he is. Just look at the guy. Peterson is like a pair of Sperry Topsider boat shoes in human form. He's admitted repeatedly to actions that are undeniably shitty. So I highly doubt the dude is going to come in below a four here. The real question here is, did Scott Peterson murder his pregnant wife, Lacey? And how will that affect his asshole score? Get ready to find out on this latest episode of Asshole Court. Alright, so let's start with the preliminary scores, and before we do that, we're just going to go ahead and make a side note here. Randy is away on vacation, so it's me and Buddy uh, that are going to be rocking the Scott Peterson story today. So, Buddy, what you got? Alright, so for once, I actually remember the person that we're covering tonight. Yeah. Um, Scott Peterson, man, we... I think it was because I was watching a lot of news with the war that was going on mm-hmm. at the time, so I caught a lot of the Scott Peterson mm-hmm. case by, um, by proxy. And I remember... I mean, you just looked at the guy and you were like, man, this guy looks like a total scuzz bucket. Yeah. But, you know, I could have gone either way with him. But once they actually started bringing out all the facts in court, it looked pretty damning towards him. And I really, you know, at the end of the day, I think he probably did do it. At least that's my um, my notion going into the show. So based on those factors and man, it was his wife who was eight months pregnant mm-hmm. with their kid. And allegedly he took out both of them. Yeah, he's going to score pretty high on my asshole score. Mm-hmm. So uh, pre-show, I'm going to give him a 7.0 off the rip. Okay, that's about right. 
and uh, I I remember this case on the periphery. I was definitely watching the Iraq War stuff at the time, and so I just remember seeing his face constantly. And he definitely looks like what the kids these days call a total Chad. Uh, <laughs> yes, he does. <laughs> But I just remember sort of feeling like, dude, it's a slam dunk case. I mean, it seemed like from the small amount of evidence that uh, I was able to glean from, I don't know, magazine front covers and stuff like that. that he National Enquirer yeah, headlines. Yeah, pretty guilty. And I didn't really care about the case all that much at the time. It seemed small to me. But I think this seven is, is a good starting point, to be honest. I think, yeah, I mean, if, if we're going to make that assumption, uh, seven would actually be pretty good. So, yeah, I'll go with seven as well. So All right. Well, with a seven from Buddy and a seven from Mikey, Scott Peterson's pre-show asshole score is a 7.0. All right. Well, let's uh, get into Scott Peterson. Let's do it. So you may be asking yourself, why are we doing a show on Scott Peterson, a guy whose murder trial was almost two decades ago? Well, recently, there's been some courtroom activity regarding this case, which I'll get into a little bit later. But more importantly, I am a true crime fan. I am as fascinated with true crime as a postmenopausal divorcee with too much times on her hand and a streaming lifetime channel service. <laughs> you know, after a rough yoga sesh, I like to get me a glass of wine, a nice bubble bath, and just read about the horrific murders of total strangers while I drunkenly daydream about solving one and doing something more with my life. Hey, nothing helps you get to sleep. Like, after that, you know, just going off and thinking about all the uh, murdering. That's exactly right. I don't know what the draw is there, but I mean, I'm, I'm only halfway kidding, dude. I mean... Bubble baths are too much work, and I'm not a huge uh, wine fan, <laughs> but I do like to like read up on true crime and stuff like that. It's a more recent thing for me, too. Like It's only popped up in the past couple of years, which probably explains why I didn't pay too much attention to the Scott Peterson case, because it was before my true crime obsession occurred. Oh, uh, yes. Um, well, that, I was obsessed with being a lawyer when I was a kid, so like that, you know, that was kind of new how they were covering a lot of the stuff in the front lines of the news, yeah. you know, the um, OJ case. Scott Peterson case. So, yeah. Yeah, that was the same way. I remember uh, watching A Few Good Men, and I was like, I'm totally going to be a lawyer. <laughs> you can't handle yeah. the truth. My mom was like, uh, you should be a lawyer because you're really good at arguing. And then now I realize that's a backhanded compliment. <laughs> she wasn't like, being nice. Yeah, that's what, that was her motherly way of saying, like, you just need to shut the fuck up sometimes, man. But uh, like I said, recently I worked with a lady that was absolutely gushing about the Scott Peterson case. And how there was like a lot to dig into. Scott Peterson, she said, might actually be innocent. What? Yeah. And I was sort of fascinated by this, too, because I was like, I just always assumed it was a slam dunk. So I was interested because I'd never looked at the case at all. And like I said, I just thought it was obvious that he was guilty. And let me start off by pointing out that there is a lot to get into. For instance, did you know that Lacey Peterson was a living, breathing person with hopes and dreams and thoughts and not just some stage prop for a murder case to be read like some Danielle Steele novel? Go on. Yeah, strange, I know, but it's true. Now, let's talk about Lacey for a second, because I do feel like uh, a lot of times she gets sort of like swept into the background on this, that she's just a body in a case. But Lacey Denise Rocha was I actually I had to look it up. I was gonna make sure I pronounced that right. Um, <laughs> of no Roca. relations to Zach Dela. Zach Dela Rocha. Yeah, no, no, that would be a lot more interesting. I guess. Killing but. in the name <laughs> of. Oh, <laughs> all right, buddy. <laughs> uh, but she was born on May fourth, nineteen seventy-five, meaning that she would be forty-five now. Had she not been murdered, mm -hmm. to be honest, she'd probably be in a bathtub herself right now, wine in hand, reading up on the Golden State Killer case or something like that. As a child, her family lived on a dairy farm in Escalon, California, a sleepy little town between Modesto and Stockton, and that's in, that's in Northern California. 
her parents divorced when she was young, and her mother took the kids to live in Modesto, although they continued to visit the dairy farm and their father on the weekends. Ah, uh, yes. Yeah. Just like my childhood. Yeah. Not at all. That was sort of like mine, but mostly it involved me being kicked out of one house to the other between my dad and my mom. <laughs> so there wasn't, and then spending the night over at my house yeah, for most weekends. The too, visits so. were usually about six months at a time before they were like, "Just get the fuck out of here." Like my mom said, "Your boy, yeah, exactly. You can't handle the truth. Just the shitty child. You're adopted. Yeah. No, wait, wait, wait. No, different episode." <laughs> Uh, Lacey was a cheerleader at Thomas Downey High School. Uh, we're talking about quintessential Americana shit here, man. Yeah, she was like the girl next door, pretty much. She was. Uh, if you were a lucky dude that had a girl like that next door, she was pretty cute. Yeah. After graduating, she went on to attend Cal Poly, where she majored in ornamental horticulture. What is ornamental horticulture? Uh, <clears throat> I think a lot of it has to do with like flower arranging and stuff like that. I, I don't know. I don't when people are out there that are listening and maybe are ornamental horticulturalists and they're like, it's nothing like that. I'm not just some flower <laughs> shop bitch. I don't know what it is. I think maybe it is just like, yeah, maybe you do uh, some sort of advising on how people can make their gardens look better or I something. I guess so. Maybe geometric shapes in your garden or something like a, that. I probably could have done a little bit more research on that, but I'm just was <laughs> like, yeah. But yeah, it was a carryover apparently from her love of gardening on the dairy farm with her mother when she was a kid. As a college student, Lacey often visited a friend who worked at a restaurant in Morro Bay called the Pacific Cafe. One of her friend's co-workers was none other than Scott Peterson. Oh. Apparently, Lacey was completely enthralled with Scott from the get-go. She gave Scott her phone number. This is a fairly forward move for oh, the time. Oh, wow. Yeah. yeah. And according to her mother, Lacey called her right after meeting Scott and declared that she had met the man that she knew she was going to marry. Oh, wow. She knew right off the rip, huh? Yeah, man. It's pretty wild to think about. I mean, she didn't even know if this guy was going to call her back, and she's like already planning the wedding, which... I don't know if that's something that like, guys do at all. I don't ever recall... Meeting the chick and being like, I'm totally going to marry this chick ever. I mean, you have infatuation, certainly. Yeah, sure. I think for guys, uh, at least for me, it was more like, I wouldn't mind marrying this chick, but we don't sit there and be like, dude, this is the one that I'm going to marry. Yeah, yeah. You know, I'm but One of my girlfriends, I remember her mom telling me that her daughter had said that about me, and that certainly did not happen. <laughs> we did not get married. <laughs> <laughs> dude, my mom... Uh, one month after I started dating my wife, mm -hmm. uh, she it was her birthday, and she wrote her a card that said, to my future daughter-in-law. Oh. And luckily, she didn't seal the back of the card, so when I opened it up and proofread it, I was like, what the fuck are you yeah. doing, Mom? And I ripped that card up, and we had to you know, go with the second round of writing. That's a good idea. Yeah. I mean, obviously, she saw what I didn't. So. I don't. Yeah, and I'm not trying to get into like a gender thing here, but it does feel something like that women do more. Like they're planning their wedding and stuff yeah, like that. And yeah. like I think we're just planning for that evening. If, you know what I'm saying? It sounds real shitty. To Long term say, and short term. Yeah, uh, you're like, man, yeah, this is gonna be a sweet sesh, bro. <laughs> and then later on, you're like, oh, yeah, I could probably see myself. Yeah, this yeah, is cool. Yeah, I could do this. Yeah, but yeah, it's it's some fairy tale shit. Um, it, like I said, Lacey didn't even know if Scott was gonna call her, but he did call her, and they went on their first date, deep sea fishing, where Lacey got seasick. Which, if I were directing a movie about this, I would really lean heavily on that first date. The boat and everything is sort of like a foreshadowing oh, technique. Oh man, yeah, it is. <clears throat> I'm just saying. It's probably like pretty ham-fisted to be honest, but it's right there, you know? The writing's on the wall. It is. But yeah, after that first date, I mean, they got serious fairly quickly. Uh, and apparently Scott had ambitions of becoming a professional golfer at the time that they had met. But he sidelined that for more reasonable career choices to support them. 
Good yeah. for him. Yeah. There's actually some interesting stuff there, too, because Scott had played golf alongside Phil Mickelson in high school. Oh, wow. Yeah. And according to Scott's dad, had gotten pretty discouraged at how good Phil Mickelson Phil was, was yeah. as compared to him. It's kind of hard when you're playing golf all the time and Phil's there just crushing it. Yeah. You know? You're seeing a dude who's like going to be a pro and a you know, relatively legendary pro. I mean, yeah, you know, no, 100%. And you're like, I want to do this. And you're just like, this guy's just so much fucking better than I am, man. Yeah. It doesn't do much for the ego. No, certainly not, man. Um, and beyond that, Scott allegedly got kicked off of his first college golf team for getting the top player drunk or oh, something like that. Yeah. Really? Like he was trying to no, cut his went, legs out from under him. No, I don't think it was that at all. I think he, they went out from what I was reading real quick was that they went out and just got real fucked up. And then uh, they had, uh, you know, had a, a round of golf the next day for, you know, for, for the school and, uh, the dude was hung over. And so the top players dad was like, fuck this dude. He's about to ruin my son's career or whatever. And he got him 86 off the course. That's exactly. Well, that's what that's or what off the, the team. That's what the rumor is, man. Yeah. But Scott finished out his bachelor's degree in agricultural business and was, according to uh, at least one of his professors, was a very good student, uh, while Lacey uh, worked in Prunedale, which is sort of in that area. But so, according to some, Scott engages in at least two affairs around this time. Regardless of the affairs, Scott and Lacey marry at the Sycamore Mineral Springs Resort in San Luis Obispo on August 9th, 1997. Which, again, going back to the asshole thing, I just can't for the life of me understand why you'd have multiple affairs and still go on to marry a person. Yeah, like, why? Why not just leave? You yeah. know what I mean? Like, Yeah, it's like pretty obvious in my mind that if you're already catching some side action this early on, that there's something wrong with the relationship. So why tie yourself into it? Yeah, like, I mean, like, you obviously see that there's no long game with this. So, I mean, like, why not just go ahead and nip it in the bud already? I, you know, it's true. I, I also feel like for some guys and this is where i'll shit on dudes instead of chicks for being like overly sentimental some guys are they just feel like it's like that's just their right like it's just yeah this is just what guys do you just cheat yeah it's it's like uh i've got family that lives in brazil Mm -hmm. and like when we would go down and visit them and go out partying with them they'd be like hey why don't you go hook up with that girl she's you know she's looking at you i'm like i'm married yeah yeah so what you're like yeah i'm married they're like ah pussy yeah you know i'm like no, okay, y'all go ahead, you yeah. know, but uh, yeah, sometimes it's very cultural, but here in the States, uh, yeah. But if you flip the script and you're like, hey, your wife's fucking that dude over there, they're like, <laughs> I'll kill that mother, motherfucker, <laughs> bitch, you're the mother of my children. Yeah, you dude, know? I've never understood that. Yeah. It's just like, dude, it's, I, I don't know, I, I couldn't do it, I don't know how you could really look yourself in the face and then go home and, yeah, I don't know. I'm but, right there with you. Remember how I said Scott was looking towards more reasonable professions? Yes, I do. Well, after they got married, he decides to open up a sports bar in San Luis Obispo called The Shack. All right. Well, the Love Shack. That's <laughs> Which <laughs> I know exactly what this place looks like without ever having been there. A sports bar called The Shack has TVs everywhere, mm-hmm. random jerseys and glass cases, signs with hot chicks and various mega brewery cheerleaders outfits, bathroom signs that say shit like locker room, at least one pool table and a golden tee video game glowing in the fucking corner. Oh, 100%. There was a Joe Montana jersey signed on the wall and girls walking around in Hooters type outfits. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 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 The shot girls that would come around at the time. Maybe even wearing refs jerseys. Yeah. It depends on who they're with. This was when we were in our early 20s and this is like the bar scene for us. And I've been to a million of these places. Of course. Of course. 
Uh, they the bar, should be pretty lucrative too, you know. Yeah, well, could be. But. Apparently, the bar got off to a, a slow start, but it then allegedly picked up steam and became busy enough to be uh, to be sustainable. But they sell the shack in 2000, and they moved to Lacey's hometown in Modesto. Okay, which I don't know why you would sell a success like a yeah, successful why, business that early on. Well, they said that uh, Lacey wanted to move back home so that way she could be closer to family to start mm-hmm. their own family. Mm-hmm. Which is cool, but I'm just thinking, like, knowing this dude and his, like, he, he has no problem, like, boning other chicks on the side. If his business was really kicking that much ass, yeah, he'd why probably he just be like, well, I don't know. It sailed its course. Yeah, yeah. No, yeah. I mean, you're right. Let's move back home so I'll be more of a family guy while I bone chicks on the side. Or maybe this is where the pivot turns for him. This is, like, you know, like, just the grievance that he carries. Could be, yeah, some resentment. Mm-hmm. That's a good point. That same year, they purchased a nice home in an upscale Modesto neighborhood for one hundred and seventy-seven thousand dollars. Man, well, I mean, that's I mean, with inflation up to this point. Oh no, 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 no! There's no way it matches inflation, dude. One hundred and seventy-seven thousand dollars. Like, I don't want to get too off topic here. Yeah, I don't want to get too off topic here. But can you imagine finding a fucking porta potty in Modesto now for under two hundred thousand? Fucking impossible, dude. I looked. And could only find mobile homes for that price range, and that isn't including the land lease, which is usually doubling your monthly payment. Yeah, at least, at least. I found this yeah. home the other day because, like, I'm you know originally I'm from Southern California, and I sometimes I think about yeah maybe I'd like to go back or whatever. And I was like, well, let me see what's going on there. I found this. Uh, it was um it was a trailer. But now trailer parks are a little different out there, depending on whether they're nice or not. There's actually some nice ones, but this one was um in Orange County down there in San Clemente and I was like it's only $200,000 I was like what a fucking deal I was like that's right there near the beach I was like the surfing is great at trestles I was like let me look at it I looked and like the trailer was $200,000 but you don't own the land so like your mortgage would be roughly like I don't know eleven, twelve hundred dollars but you know what the land lease was on that thing what's that it was like $2,000 a month so for a trailer in San Clemente it was like $3,200, a month. Oh, my god! And you never own the land. Oh, my gosh. Yeah. And Forever that's what they land leasing. Yeah, yeah. That's yeah. that's how it works. And that's, dude, and that's, I was like, in Modesto, that was all I could find was homes that were like $200,000 that were like shitty trailers. So Jeez. think about this. Like, yeah, they roll into a $177,000 home in a nice neighborhood in Modesto. I just, again, I don't want to get too off topic here. It just blows my fucking mind, dude. I've seen pictures of the house. It seemed pretty nice, you know, yeah. nice little, I think it was like maybe like a two bedroom or something like Three that. Three bedroom, two bath. It yeah. was like a bungalow style, I believe, yeah, or whatever. Yeah, yeah. It was just, you know, shit, man. It's just, I don't, I don't know. There's Lacey a, kept it really nice, really neat and clean yeah, yeah. Uh, as the detectives who came in and took pictures afterwards yeah. noted. So. Yeah. Yeah, she was about it, man. Uh, she gets started working as a substitute teacher, and Scott gets a job with Tradecourt USA as a fertilizer salesman, in which he's earning about 60000 a year, which is pretty good for a 27, 28-year-old or whatever it is at the time. And, yeah, sure. You know, in 2001. Yeah. Uh, or 2000, whatever. In 2002, Lacey announces that she is pregnant, and everyone is happy. Woohoo! Maybe. Hey, guys, real quick. If you're liking the show, do us a favor and give us that sweet, sweet five-star rating on Apple Podcast or whatever platform you're listening on. It does make a huge difference. Now, back to asshole court. And now we get to the more famous part. December 23rd, 2002, Lacey and Scott go to Amy Roach's salon to get Scott's haircut. That was her sister and... They had like a monthly Scott gets his haircut deal or whatever. Okay. I don't know what that is, but 
Amy says that Scott volunteered to pick up a fruit basket for their grandfather the following day for Christmas since he'd be playing golf at a course nearby. Okay. That evening, Lacey's mother, Sharon, speaks with her on the phone around 8.30 p.m. That's the last time they would talk. The next morning, Scott says that he sees Lacey last around 9.30, and then he leaves to go fishing at Berkeley Marina. Okay. He says that Lacey was watching the Martha Stewart show, getting ready to mop the floor, bake cookies, and then take their dog for a walk at a nearby park. A neighbor named Karen Service reported that around 10.30 a.m., she found the Peterson's dog alone outside the home and returned the dog to the Peterson's backyard. Mm -hmm. Another neighbor, Mike Chiavetta, said that he saw the dog at around 10.45 that morning. Okay. And another neighbor, who couldn't be named, stated that she saw the dog wandering the neighborhood with a muddy leash and that she returned it to the Peterson's backyard. So we've got a couple of different people that have returned this different dog. Ti- yeah, different, different, different times, times, different, you know, it's, okay. it's hard to say. They didn't name the person in that article. So they could have been talking to Karen Service, you know, and you just, they just, didn't get a name. Yeah. Okay, I gotcha. A number of other people claimed to have seen Lacey walking the dog herself, although that could have been a case of mistaken identity, as a Sacramento Bee article I found from the time pointed out that a pregnant woman who very much resembled Lacey, and she apparently walked in the area pretty frequently. Okay. But I, I don't. It's very confusing, man. And it's hard when you're not really like looking, seeing something in passing, and then like afterwards coming back where there's a lot of attention around it. Yeah. You know, like uh, recall is not. It's right. not. It's shitty. Actually, it, that's I, in one of these articles I was reading. It was a Psychology Today article was discussing that exact fact. They yeah. were like, human recall is so shitty as to be about as like effective as a, as a coin toss. Yeah. Like they were doing all these studies and they found that like actual like eyewitness testimony and recalls like that was about 52 or 54% accurate. I think if I read correctly, Jeez. so it's literally like a coin toss sometimes. That's what it's sort and of it interesting. gets worse the longer that it goes. Absolutely. Yeah. And then also, you know, it's, it's not hard to, I don't want to say this is like a malicious thing, but it's, it's not hard to implant memories and just say like, yeah. if someone asks suggestive yeah, uh, thoughts they, and stuff like that, if detectives ask suggestive questions, they can sort of guide someone through yeah. stuff like that. Um, so it, it, like I said, the, the whole point of this is, to just sort of discuss how fucking difficult it is to parse through this and get an accurate picture. Sure. When Scott returns home later, he finds the house empty, although Lacey's vehicle is still in the driveway. Uh, and she was driving like a Land Rover, which are total pieces of shit, but they're also like, uh, you know, sporty, rich people looking pieces of shit. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, social I, status. Yes. You know. I don't think there's a better, a more definitive vehicle for social status and just like, the opposite reality than a Land Rover Discovery. Like, they're just so bad. Well, I mean, how many times, and, you know, audience, correct me if I'm wrong, but how many times do people actually take those vehicles off-road? It's true. Uh, probably not that much. You know, you know what I mean? I mean, it's funny. If, if you go look on, like, Auto Trader for a Land Rover Discovery, like, they're dirt cheap because they're such a ba- <laughs> they're They're so expensive to maintain. They break yeah. down so frequently. Yeah. So, I digress. Whatever. Scott says that at that point he got in the shower he washed his clothes because he had gotten wet from fishing. And this would become an issue later on as the prosecution would try to point out the suspiciousness of these activities, alluding to him having washed the evidence of the murder away. But I'll say that I've gotten back from various outdoor activities like a million times and immediately hopped in the shower and threw clothes in the wash. It's not all that weird in my opinion. It's not weird in my opinion either. Like if you go out fishing, you know, you probably stink of ocean or lake you've got maybe fish guts on you maybe worm guts on you you know the first thing you probably want to do is take a shower yeah i mean ocean fishing in like december too it's cold sometimes you just want to get and just take a hot shower dude i mean i get it so i don't know we'll get into this more but again that being like a major point i was just kind of like i don't know dude got the shower and seems so weird to me yeah 
According to some sources, shortly thereafter, Scott calls the cops and reports Lacey missing. But some other sources point out that it wasn't Scott that called at all, but rather it was Lacey's stepfather, Ron Gransky, who first calls the police after Scott had called Lacey's mother around 5.15 p.m. Yeah, the um, documentary that I watched on it, actually, the opening scene of it is the stepfather calling in and reporting it yeah. to 911. Yeah, everything I've read it seems to lean towards that it wasn't Scott calling the cops, it was Ron Gransky. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, take that for what you will, I don't know. Yeah. According to one detective, when they arrived on the scene, there was a phone book on the counter open to a full-page ad for a defense lawyer. Really? That's what he says. Man. Yeah, that's kind of suspicious. Yeah, yeah. Uh, investigators questioned Scott about his day. Initially, he said that he was playing golf. Remember the fruit basket thing? Uh-huh. Uh, but then he changed the story to having gone fishing at the Berkeley Marina, roughly 90 miles from their home. And indeed, Scott had called Lacey during the day and said, Hey, beautiful, it's 2.15. I'm leaving Berkeley, which, you know... It's really nice that he was kind of enough to put like a time stamp on there and everything. I <laughs> always leaving this place <laughs> at this time. I always call my wife and say, it's 946 p.m. Just leaving my favorite local sports bar, the shack. Love you, babe. <laughs> According to detectives, they were immediately suspicious of Scott because of his behavior. Not to mention, as I like to point out here, that it's fucking always the spouse. Always. <laughs> right? Always. Like, I'd like to see a true crime show that was called The Spouse Didn't Actually Do It, because it's, like the statistics <laughs> on this are absolutely mind-blowing. I mean, statistically speaking, all you people that are terrified of home invasions by strangers should probably be more concerned about getting iced by the partner you fuck at regular intervals. You know what I'm saying? Like That's why I always treat my wife like top shelf, right? Because mm-hmm. I do not want to get axed by her, and she's the one who has the most access to me. It's true. And, I mean, Knows like, my habits, knows when I'm going to be asleep, and when I'm going to be there. And has most be reason to have like a beef with you. Of course. You know what I'm saying? I actually, like, true story, like me and my wife love to watch we call it murder shows, right? Like it's true crime shit. And like, we always joke around about, you know, she'll be like, Oh yeah, dude, you know, you have a life insurance policy. And I have to tell her like, stop saying that shit <laughs> in like public. Because I was like, at the end of the day, like, I don't think you'd ever do this, but if some weird shit happened, I was like, you're the first person they're looking at. And someone's gonna be like, I remember her saying shit about killing you for a life insurance policy. That. Yeah. My wife had a $2 million life insurance policy at one point, And, uh, I joked around every once in a while yeah. with her coworkers. And that was probably the worst thing I could possibly don't do. do that shit. Because like I said, you're the first person that they're looking at. And yeah. Reasonably so, man. Of course. It's crazy. Uh, anyway. stands the most to benefit. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Scott told police that he had driven to his nearby warehouse to send emails and retrieve his boat to take to Berkeley Marina. And this is actually backed up by evidence because they found the emails and they actually had the marina stamp, the time stamp, which is 90 miles away. And that's sort of what's interesting to me is that he said that he did about 90 minutes of fishing before returning his boat to the warehouse and heading home. And I'm just thinking, like, why would you drive 90 miles to only fish for an hour and a half? Yeah, what what's up with that? I, I heard that he just wanted to get the boat wet or something like that. And that could be the case. Like I said, I don't really, look, I don't do a whole lot of fishing. I'm not good at it. I don't own a boat. I probably never will. Uh, but it just seems like a lot of work for, like, very little payoff. Yeah. A 90-mile drive for a 90-minute boat thing. And then also you're telling everybody you're going to play golf. Yeah. And he didn't play Did golf. Did he get the fruit basket? I do <laughs> buddy asking the important questions. <laughs> but what about the fruit? But like, yeah, that's just me thinking out loud. 
So I also read that um, the stepdad was uh, an avid fisherman, mm-hmm. and they always thought that Scott was a great person. They, yeah. you know, especially whenever all the shit hit the fan, they didn't really think that he was a suspect at all. Mm-hmm. But what they did find interesting was that they had no clue that he had a boat. And like they talked at length with him about everything. Yeah. And you figure you if it's your father in law and he's about fishing, that's the first thing you're like, I just got a new boat. We should go check this shit out. You know what I mean? So, yeah, I mean, he, he had he was a secretive dude in a bunch of ways. You yeah. know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But yeah, like I said, Scott claimed that when he arrived home to an empty house, he had assumed that Lacey had gone to her mother's, which is fine. I mean, but like I mentioned, her car was still in the driveway. And yeah, I suppose. Yeah, I suppose like her mom could have driven over to pick her up, but that seems like a lot of extra work for no reason. Yeah, exactly. And this is a whole like 15 years before Uber comes out. So, you know, yeah, I, I it's, it's again, it's just yeah. odd, right? Mm-hmm. So the detectives are suspicious and they're doing what they're supposed to do, right? They're drilling down on Scott as a suspect or trying to eliminate him as one. And they ask him to take a polygraph, which he declines immediately. Actually, he agreed to the polygraph initially, but they brought him in on uh, Christmas Eve or Christmas Day. Mm-hmm. And while he was talking with the detective, they were just getting all the facts. He agrees to the polygraph. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then he uh, apparently he had a conversation with his dad. And when they were getting him prepped for the polygraph, he was like, no, I'm not taking that. Yeah. And I mean, honestly, the thing for me is I get it, dude. Fuck polygraphs, dude. They're borderline pseudoscience that they're not even admissible in court. And I, I think I would probably decline one as well. Sure. Just on principle, on principle alone, alone. Almost, like, right? I, for me, I would be just so nervous. Like my nerves would yeah. be not a true testament as to what was the truth or not is no. what my fear would be. But detectives love to use that shit to get like a gut feeling like the old, well, if you've got nothing to hide technique. And I mean, like I said, it really should be eliminated as a tool of any sort, in my opinion. I'll leave that for another day. I, I, I parallel it to like the, the drug dog walking around the car and, you know, like the dog alerts to the back of the yeah. car, you know, but you also see him kind of like, what is the alert? You know what right, I mean? Right. Like, it's so. very questionable. And yeah. like I said, it's not even admissible into a courtroom. Yeah, sure. It literally is just like they're 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 just using it to see if someone's nervous about taking a test. Yeah, exactly. And so that they can bring it up in court. Yes. You know that. Oh, well, he declined the polygraph yeah. test, you know. But beyond the polygraph's questionability, detectives stated that Scott seemed largely uninterested in the search and he couldn't answer basic questions like what type of bait he was using that morning at the marina, which certainly isn't, it's not like a smoking gun, I know, but I feel like you'd remember the bait you were using that morning. Yeah, I would assume so too. I mean, I went deep sea fishing two years ago and can tell you what we were using for bait that day. Mackerel, which is pretty fucked up when you think about what we were catching with it. Mackerel. (laughs) (laughs) But whatever, dude. One detective noted, quote, his major concerns were not lacy. His major concerns were his car door hitting his other car door in the driveway or me taking a picture of this boat in his shop or getting a receipt for the pink slipper and sunglasses that tracking dog people use for Lacey's scent. Hmm. And it wasn't just the detectives that noticed that Scott seemed pretty relaxed about the disappearance of his very pregnant wife. You see, the story quickly got legs in the media and almost immediately news trucks started camping out on the Peterson's yard. They were there waiting ready to film every second of Scott outside of his own door. Yep. The Nancy Grace media time has has arrived. Oh, yeah. And on December 31st, they got footage, which certainly didn't help old Scott in the court of public opinion. That day, the town of Modesto and the Rocha family held a candlelight vigil for Lacey and Connor. Connor was her unborn son. They had named Their it. unborn yes, son. Yes, yes. <clears throat> Scott declined to speak at the vigil, but he was in attendance. And photographers caught two pretty damning pictures at this event. 
In one picture, Scott bends down alongside his niece to set down a candle, a big smile across his face. In the second picture, he is standing with some people and laughing. Jeez. Now, I want like, to... This is a week after this has supposedly happened. Yeah. Like, dude, if my wife disappears on Christmas Eve, mm-hmm. I am torn up. I am. I mean, it's possible that, you know, like, you and Randy might, you know, try to make me laugh at something mm-hmm. just to cut the tension or something like that. But mm-hmm. I got to imagine I am uh, hardcore depressed. Yeah. If not falling over drunk at this point. You know, you got to point out that people do act differently in the face of tragedy, obviously. There's like not a set way of acting in a situation, but yeah, I, I agree with that. But, but let's be honest, Scott's reaction, especially in juxtaposition with Lacey's families, who they were just bawling, crying the entire time, yeah. panic. It certainly didn't help his case. Yeah, at all. I'm not, this. It's not like it's again not smoking gun evidence here, but you're just like it doesn't look great, especially with the detectives talking about like. Oh, he was worried about the car doors hitting each other. Yeah. And he's worried about getting a receipt on stuff that they're going to use so he could like, I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. It's strange, dude. Still at this point, the Rocha family is backing Scott, even though the public and the police are getting suspicious. That all changed shortly thereafter when another piece of information comes to light. And that piece of information is that Scott Peterson had been carrying on an affair. Oh, snaps. And the details of the affair are pretty damning. The woman's name was Amber Fry. She was a massage therapist and a single mom, because of course she was. Of course she was. <laughs> and was introduced to Scott by a friend in November 2002. Okay. So we're getting a timeline here. Yep. All right. Lacey is seven months pregnant, November 2002. Okay. And the affair began after he met a woman named Sean Sibley on in, like October of 2002 at a trade convention where he represented his company trade corp this is the fertilizer company right correct okay <clears throat> he told her that he was single and looking he joked that he should put quote horny bastard on his name tag to help him meet women which oh I man just like yeah <laughs> stand up guy yeah stand up scott and also the game plan on that isn't great like i don't think women want to meet a guy's as horny bastard i'm sure Nine out of ten women would be like, "That's the guy that I want to go home with." Yeah, I even if like, because I mean, you know, he was he wasn't an ugly dude. They're probably like, "Oh, oh, he's put horny bastard as your name tag." (laughs) Like they're like, "All right," Uh, but like I said, uh, Sibley was involved in a relationship, but she thought that she had a good match for Scott with Amber Fry, who was a friend of hers. Mm-hmm. And they started fucking shortly thereafter. Yeah, Amber said that uh, when they first met, that like there was fireworks right off yeah. the rip, and mm, that it was yeah. just. I mean, imagine thinking about this too. Like, imagine being Sean Sibley, where she's like, "Oh, I met this really horny dude. I got the perfect person for you. <laughs> she is down to fuck, man." And uh, and yeah, of course, it's funny. She's already got a kid. Yeah, and I, you know, you I know feel she's fucking. I feel I feel bad, for, like bringing this up and talking about Amber Fry in some sort of like, you know, bad light here, but it's just, it's, it does feel like if you're I like, mean, well, to her credit, she didn't know that. No, 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 he no, no, was, no. I'm not, I'm not, I'm, I don't, I'm not trying to speak about her personally, but I'm thinking about in like, in terms of the setup <laughs> was that like, I met this guy at a convention. He's really looking DTF, to fuck. And, and I got someone that's also ready to fuck. And I don't, you know, I, I do. I don't know. It's, it's yeah, just, it's, I'm with you. It's, it's interesting. Uh, but in early December, around the same time uh, that they were photographed, that's Amber Fry and uh, Scott Peterson, at a holiday party together looking cozy, Scott told Amber that his then very much still alive wife had died and this would be his first Christmas season without her. Okay, now actually, he didn't say that she died. 
he had told her beforehand that he was not married, but then he was like, I got to come clean. I was married, but this is going to be my first Christmas without her. So he never actually said that she died. Did he allude to it, though? Did he say that we're divorced or did he say this is going to be my first Christmas season without my wife? She later on came back and was like, I really should have, like, you know, kind of grilled him a little bit more about that because he had lied to me in that Yeah, sense. it seems like a pretty big fucking thing to but, ask. Uh, but I, he was putting on a show, I guess. Like, he was crying or just, like, seemed really disheveled and was like, this is going to be my first Christmas without her. So he never said that she died. Okay. And that actually comes up later on in the court case. Gotcha. Okay. All right. Well, there you go. Yeah. So, yeah, either way, not a great look. No, not at all. <laughs> Worse still for Scott, Fry had gone to the police by this time, very early in the investigation, and volunteered to record her conversation with Scott as evidence. Yes. And the night of that vigil for Lacey? Yes. Yeah. Scott had called Amber Fry immediately afterward, telling Fry that he was celebrating New Year's Eve in Paris on a business trip. Stating at one point, quote, I'm uh, near the Eiffel Tower and the New Year's celebration is unreal. The crowd is huge. It's so big. I'm walking on the cobblestone roads. I mean, sweet Jesus. What a dumbass, dude. This is a national news story. And he's thinking Amber Fry doesn't have a clue who he is yet. Like, dumbass, asshole, dumbasshole. Dude, he even said, uh. Look, I'm going to go to bed now, but I'm going to call you at 9 a.m. here this time, which is going to be midnight your time. Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, just to be able to wish you a happy new year. What a cock holster, dude. Like, think about, like, all the the thought that you have to put into that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, the premeditation in that sense to, like, be like, all right, well, what is the time zone difference in France? And yeah. Or he could have been just fucking firing from the hip. Who knows? But, I mean, it's probably pretty close to accurate, I'm guessing. We cover in the show a lot of liars and stuff like that it just always blows my mind man actually i I listened to a really great radio lab podcast the other day where they were talking about deception as a whole Mm -hmm. and there was a scientist on there that was talking about compulsive liars and stuff like that and it was fascinating i'm not going to get into it if you ever have a chance you should listen to it because i i can't i don't understand i can't figure out what makes these people tick yeah I, uh, I don't understand it me. either, but I mean, there are pathological liars out there. There's a lot of them. Scott is definitely painting himself into that corner yeah. right now. A lot of the people that we cover on the show are pathological are liars. Yeah. yeah. In mid-January 2003, police learned that the National Enquirer had in its possession a photograph of Fry and Scott and intended to publish it. This forced their hand, and Fry went on the air the next day and revealed the affair to the world. Yep. So the, the detectives kind of had to rush and tell they didn't want like the parents finding out through mm-hmm. the National Enquirer mm-hmm. that Scott was cheating and stuff like that. So they show the picture to the parents and apparently the mom put her head into her hands and started crying was like, why did he have to kill her? It's it's a betrayal. And, and like on so many levels. Yeah. You know what I'm saying like even if you're assuming he didn't kill her. Like the the family thought that he was like a member of their family. Like yeah. they were going to bat for this dude, and then they're like, "Oh, here's a picture of this chick. He's fucking now, now, that, now, yeah. while your yeah. daughter's missing." Yeah, and I, I can't. I mean, we've all been in in a, in a place where we've been betrayed, and it is it spins your your oh. head, man, mentally for a loop. You, it's hard to to find that again. They were talking about this on the Radio Lab episode where they're like, it affects you the way you think about everybody. Of course. Of course, Scott, knowing that the affair made him look like a giant asshole, if not a fucking murderer, swung into PR repair mode and decided to go on Good Morning America for an interview. And that interview was a smashing success for his side of the story. 
I'm just kidding. It was an utter disaster. <laughs> oh, that's exactly what I thought it was. <laughs> he made three major mistakes in it. One, he lied about having told the police about the affair with Amber Fry. He hadn't. Oh, good guy, Scott. That's it. Two, he stated that Lacey had known about the affair and was pretty cool with it, which I just, I swear to fucking God, I don't, like, your missing wife, all this shit, and you're like, nah, she knew about this shit, dude. Like Amber ripped into him and was like, your wife was cool with you. She's eight months pregnant. Yeah. And she's like, oh, cool. And obviously, if she were cool with it, he wouldn't have had to hide this yeah, shit. Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. <clears throat> he would just be like, yeah, I'm married. I mean, you know, whatever. It's fucking crazy. Yeah, exactly. He's an, uh, he's an asshole. There's no way around it. And then number three, he talked about Lacey in the past tense, stating that she was amazing. Oh. And at this point, she was still just a missing person. They hadn't even found the body yet. And sure, it doesn't prove anything. But like I said, it certainly is not a good look at all. Yeah, no, not at mm-hmm. all. At the same time in January, also, as all the evidence is getting kind of stacked up against him, he's like selling Lacey's truck and looking to sell the home that they live in. And she's still a missing person right. at this point. Like, dude, come on. Yeah. Like, and I think the family tried to make the argument that it was um, he was just trying to get out of Modesto because he was such a known quantity and trying to get away from the media spectacle. And they were trying to make the argument that they had come in and taken stuff out of the house that had no evidentiary value. Yeah, whatever. Just like people coming into the house and taking stuff. Right, right, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. But, but still, you don't sell your wife's car if I, she's still a missing person at this point. You still have hope that she's going to come back. That's what I'm saying. Like, you know, it's not even just about the reality of the situation. If you have a functioning brain, you have to recognize the perception of what this looks like. And it's just either he's so fucking stupid Dude. as to be like oblivious to how this looks to everybody. Or he's just, uh, just I don't know. He's like starting to turn into Jose Canseco's brother over here or something. Yeah. <laughs> Instead of just whipping out your phone and pushing random buttons in that awkward situation, make sure you're subscribed to our channel on your favorite podcast platform. You don't want to miss a new show. Now, back to the action. But four months later in April, the past tense becomes real as some beachcombers found two mutilated, decomposed bodies wash ashore. One which seemed to be an adult woman's torso, and another which was an infant. Within days, DNA tests confirmed the bodies belonged to Lacey and Connor. And honestly, like, the findings were pretty fucking gruesome. I'm not going to go into too much detail here. It's rough. It's really rough. A lot of which had to do with the time frame and the bodies likely being at sea for an extended period of time. On the same week that the bodies were found... The police were keeping a tight watch on Scott. In fact, they had put a tracker on his car and were afraid that he was going to try to disappear across the border. Oh, flight risk. eh? Exactly. Chief Roy Wasden of the Modesto police sought the arrest warrant for Mr. Peterson a day before the bodies were identified because he feared Mr. Peterson might flee to Mexico, where law forbids extradition of anyone facing the death penalty. Mm -hmm. And on April 18th, 2003, the cops get concerned enough about Scott that they swoop in for an arrest at a golf course in La Jolla which is a wealthy neighborhood in San Diego. I think uh, the golf course was Torrey Pines. I'm not sure exactly. Oh, wow. I've yeah. played that, but only through uh, Tiger Woods Yeah, Torrey Pines is a very nice <laughs> course, man. Uh, and San Diego is, as anyone with a basic knowledge of geography knows, right fucking next to the Mexican border. And what cops find on Scott is pretty fucking nuts, dude. They find somewhere between ten and $15,000 in cash, some Mexican money, 
12 Viagra tablets, survival gear, camping equipment, several changes of clothes, four cell phones, and two driver's licenses. Yeah, like one of his brothers or something like that. One was his and one was his brother's. Additionally, he had dyed his hair blonde and had grown a goatee. Now, I remember back in the 90s or maybe early 2000s, you dyed your hair blonde. I certainly did. And it made you look completely different. Absolutely, yeah. It was the haircut du jour. If you were a late teen, early 20-something at the time, the (laughs) M&M, the platinum blonde was for real. And I smoked my scalp so many times. Bleaching my hair. My stepsister still laughs about that because it hurt to bleach your hair. Oh, like that I shit. bet it did. <laughs> but uh, my you hair didn't was kill white. anybody back then, did you? I didn't. I didn't kill right. anybody, you know? All right. All right. So we're going to go with that story. All now. right. <laughs> <laughs> now, now, the Peterson family says that this isn't what it seemed to be, and uh, we can get into that. They argue that Scott was not a flight risk, that he had spent tons of time in San Diego just to get away from the media in Modesto that he had actually left the country on a business trip to Guadalajara during the investigation and had come back, and that was in February. You know, so, okay. They said the money was from the sale of his truck, which he hadn't deposited yet, that there was only a tiny fraction of the money that was in Mexican pesos, and his hair and goatee had been changed weeks before as he was trying to avoid being spotted by the media, so it wasn't like a brand new thing. Mm -hmm. And he had his brother's license because he was going to return it to him. He had apparently used it to get a discount at Torrey Pines, who offers a discount to San Diego residents. Yeah. They said, it's not for trying to cross the border and right. not have your ID get flagged, right? Right. Uh-huh. They, they said the camping gear in Scott's car was purchased uh, March 16th at REI, which is one month and two days before his arrest. So I, I don't know. Take that from what you will. But again, the perception you know what is I mean? not great. You know what I'm saying? It's, again, no smoking gun. But, dude, if you're getting arrested with all that shit and you're a suspect, I just is so dumb. Dude, when all the evidence usually points a certain direction, I mean, mm-hmm. eh, it's, it's it's hard tough. to yeah, hard to talk your way out of it. Yeah, it's I mean, again, you're not winning in the court of public opinion at this point. So Scott Peterson gets arrested. He's arraigned on April 21st with two counts of murder. Connor, with whom Lacey was still pregnant and her death, was included as a murder victim under California's fetal homicide law that protects any fetus that's eight weeks old or older. That same month, President Bush actually signed the Unborn Victims of Violence Act, also known as the Lacey and Connors Law, which criminalized harming a fetus when assaulting a pregnant woman. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wow. That's why it's called Lacey and Connors Law. Yeah, that's uh, them. So he signs it into law like as he's getting arrested before he's even been tried. Yeah, pretty much. Wow. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some people felt like the legislation was a sneaky method to establish personhood for fetuses in the abortion yeah. war or whatever. Yeah, no, that makes sense. But uh, the Rocha family requested the case be considered for the death penalty, and the DA obliged. On November 12th, the jury hit Scott with the big dick. First degree murder for Lacey and second degree for Connor. In December, the jury recommended Scott get served the death penalty, and the following March... The judge was like, yup, fry his ass. Scott's next stop was San Quentin. And that would seem like the end of the story, but a couple of things have occurred since. For one, in March of 2019, California Governor Gavin Newsom issued a moratorium for all 737 prisoners on death row in California, including Peterson. The order postpones all executions for the duration of Newsom's tenure as governor. So Peterson can't be executed as long as Newsom is governor. It's not like California was really executing anybody anyways. Their last execution was in 2006, I believe. Yeah, that's that's right. But more importantly, in October of this year, 
The death sentence for Peterson was fully overturned by a judge and a potential retrial ordered due to the legal errors made by the trial judge and a woman who allegedly lied to get picked for the jury and became obsessed with the death of the fetus. Oh, really? Mm-hmm. Wow. Her name was Rochelle Nice, and she was juror number seven, and she lied to get picked for the jury. Initially, she was seated as an alternate, but she replaced a discharged juror during deliberations. She later co-wrote a book about the case with several other jurors. Peterson's lawyers argued that Nice had worked really hard to get on the jury. Uh, they said that even though her employer would pay for only two weeks of jury service, Nice said that she was willing to forego months of pay to serve. Oh, wow. All the potential jurors were asked whether they had ever been a victim of a crime or involved in a lawsuit, and Nice had answered no to both questions. But in fact, Nice in 2000 had obtained a restraining order against her boyfriend's ex-girlfriend for harassing her when she was four and a half months pregnant. And she also filed a lawsuit to obtain the order saying that she feared for her unborn child, which ended up sending her partner's ex-girlfriend to jail for a while. Oh, wow. Yeah. They also said that Nice was uh, one of the two holdouts for convicting Peterson of first-degree murder for killing his unborn child, Connor. Oh, really? Remember, he got second-degree murder for that Second one. Second-degree on she that. She was pushing for him to get first-degree murder. And the jury convicted Peterson of the first-degree murder of Lacey, like I said, of the second-degree murder of the fetus. But Nice constantly called Connor little man. And perhaps strangest of all, after the trial, Peterson's lawyer said that Nice wrote Peterson more than two dozen letters, many of them focused on killing his unborn son. Oh, wow. Yeah. So after the case, she's continuously writing him letters. Yeah. You know, you hear about inmates getting letters, you know, Mm -hmm. but like love letters. This was quite the opposite. Yeah. And this is from somebody who was on the jury that convicted him. That's right. Right. And this is this is the thing is like people get upset about people getting off on technicalities and stuff like that but this is how this happens like you shouldn't have an activist juror you're supposed to go in there blindly and it was very tough to do this case that though because i mean this happened uh they did get a change of venue right they moved to san mateo i think but it was in this like it was 90 miles away yeah and it was in like the same news cycle circuit so i mean like they were seeing all the same news it wasn't that's what uh, another thing that the lawyers were arguing for a retrial was that they never stood a chance. It should have gone down to Southern California. Yeah. Uh, I mean, even them. then it's a global case at this point. Yeah, it's so I mean, hard to find a, you know, a juror that hasn't been tainted by the, the media at that point. When they read the verdicts, um, there was crowds outside. They said that it was audible. The cheers you could hear in the courtroom oh, yeah. from outside people. Yeah. yeah. Cheering and stuff. Like yeah. That. It was, it was very emotionally charged. Yeah. For 100%. sure. And finally, There has been somewhat of an online movement, at least partially funded by the Peterson family, to change the public opinion of Scott's guilt lately. A TV documentary was aired that definitely has a number of people beginning to question Scott's guilt, my previously mentioned co-worker included. I'm going to address what I find to be the most interesting points of the Scott is innocent camp. First, let's talk about the burglary theory. On December 24th, the day Lacey went missing, Diane Jackson, a neighbor of Lacey and Scott, says that she saw three men outside a home across the street, stating, quote, on December 24th, I was on my way home, and when I went by Rudy and Susan Medina's house, I saw people on the lawn and a van. I noticed it because they all turned around and looked at me, and I thought, hmm, that's weird. The home, which belonged to the Medinas, like she talked about, was robbed that same day at 6.30 a.m. So the thought process here is that Lacey was walking the dog, comes across the burglars, who murder her to cover up their crime. Mm-hmm. And this might explain the Peterson's dog roaming the neighborhood still leashed and muddy. Yep, I can see that train of thought. 
But the cops contended that the burglary actually took place on the 26th, which is two days after Lacey disappeared. And they said it wasn't a big deal. And they looked into it, whatever. Sure. However, there are a number of people that contest the cops' timeline. Ted Rollins, a reporter from KTVU, has stated that he was in front of the house at 5 a.m. on December 26th and said that there was absolutely no break-in that occurred at the time. Remember, they all got there yeah, very that, that early. that was all the news people that were there. I mean, like, yeah. if you're thinking about committing a, an act of burglary, don't you think that you would try to do it in a place that didn't really have a bunch of people standing around? Right, yeah. And that's, that's what his point was. And he said, quote, The police said the burglary took place on December 26th, not December 24th. The problem with that is I was standing outside the house at five in the morning on December 26th, and if the burglars were there, I would have interviewed them because they were <laughs> because there was nobody outside of the front of that house. Rollins continued by saying, my head was on a swivel that morning, and there's absolutely no way a burglary took place on December 26th. Hmm. Okay. But the thing for me is that regardless of the date, if the robbery took place at 6.30 a.m., then the timeline doesn't match up anyway. At all. Yeah. Because remember... Because they were sleeping until like 8 a.m. or something like that. <clears throat> right. Or at least Scott was, and then he woke up and was watching the Martha Stewart show with her. Correct. And, you know, that I think that aired from like 8 to 9 or something in the courtroom here. Yeah, he so. was saying that he left at 9.30 in the morning, and yeah. they had been watching the show, and then he left or whatever. Yeah. And then remember all the times of the people that were saying that they saw Lacey walking the dog or saw the dog. All of this is well past 6.30 in the morning. And I doubt... As a burglar, you're going to spend four hours stealing a TV. Yeah, on Christmas Eve as right. well. You know what I mean? Like, that's a time when people are usually home more often than not. You know what right. I mean? You don't want to be just in and out yeah. of a house for four hours. No. no, Nobody's robbing a house for four hours. Yeah. And not, you know, it, it, like I said, I don't know. I mean, it's, it's interesting and sure it deserves some further investigation, I suppose. But I just don't think there's much there. Yeah. So now on to the second part of the innocent theory and the one that actually grabbed my attention when my coworker brought it up to me. And that's the serial killer theory. Yeah. Okay. What is the serial killer theory, you may ask? Well, let me explain it like my coworker did. Did you know there were a number of similar looking pregnant women in the Modesto area that went missing around the same time? And I thought to myself when she told me this, I was like, holy shit, dude, that's a big deal if that's true. Because like serial killers are definitely out there and they have victim types. So, definitely worth a look. Yeah, absolutely. If somebody is snatching pregnant women off the streets in Modesto multiple times in this time frame, same area, you got to look into that. And there's actually a great documentary series out there called The Killing Season, which legit shook me because it makes a very credible case that there are like a fuck ton of active serial killers out there at any given time. But the reality is that the vast majority of these serial killers hunt in a similar victim pool which is to say it's mostly prostitutes, vagrants, and drifters. You know, people that nobody's looking for. Yeah, of course. You don't want to bring any attention to yourself. Right. Yeah. And Lacey obviously wasn't any of these things. But I still wanted to look into this claim because it's it seems very important. And uh, there are a number of Scott is Innocent websites that are constantly harping on it. So on Reddit, I, there's, a, there's a subreddit called Unresolved Mysteries. Okay. And I actually just this week came across a post by a user there by the name of Quirky Motor who had done a pretty deep dive on the claim. Okay. And here's a summarizing statement that Quirky Motor wrote about this. Quote, I planned on remembering the women that didn't get the media attention while also looking into the similarities and differences between these women's cases and the case of Lacey's murder. But I discovered something that I did not expect. These pregnant women so often talked about in documentaries and online simply don't exist. Really? Yep. 
Here's a few examples that I just pulled it. There's a lot more. We can get into it more, but surface level. Yeah. One was uh, her name was Janine Sanchez Harms of Los Gatos, California, which is roughly 90 miles from Modesto. She went missing in July 2001 after a night out. The 42-year-old worked at a computer company and was not pregnant. Harms' case was cold for a few years, but has since been solved. Her killer, a spurned lover of Janine's, has since passed away, and the case is considered solved and closed. Hmm. So, that's, that's not her. That's not it. Tony Clark of San Francisco, senior in high school and a talented athlete in 1990. Clark was driving home one night when she was struck from behind by another vehicle and presumably flew into the San Francisco Bay. Her body was never recovered and she is assumedly deceased. The driver of the other car was tried for vehicular manslaughter but was not convicted as Tony's body was missing and the jury felt that no one could prove that Tony had actually died. Tony was about six weeks pregnant at the time. Her case is tragic, but law enforcement believes nothing more than a fatal car crash. Okay. And it was 1990. It was 12 years before this happened and it's San Francisco. (laughs) These are ones that are listed on the Scott is Innocent websites, right? Oh, jeez. Karen Madoffy is one of the women listed on SII.org, which is ScottIsInnocent.org, but she doesn't exist. Then there's Kristen Smart, a Cal Poly student who was a college freshman when she was last seen. She was not pregnant and lived 217 miles from Modesto. The main suspect in her case is a man named Paul Flores, who was found to be in possession of some of Smart's bloody jewelry. He's never been charged in the case. Law enforcement has confirmed that this case is not related to Lacey's at all. Okay. Tara Smith. 16 years old, also not pregnant. In 1998, when she uh, vanished from Redding, California, which is 250 miles north of Modesto, the blonde high schooler left her home one day to break up with her boyfriend, a married 29-year-old father. She never returned home, and her body has never been found. Tara's boyfriend was sentenced for statutory rape due to Tara's age, but was never charged with her murder or disappearance. It's considered closed. So there's a couple things here, because a lot of things that these uh, websites are arguing is that all of these women have similarities, which is that you're looking have, for like a Zodiac killer. Correct. And there is just everything's just not the same. They're pregnant. They're roughly Hispanic looking or sure. whatever, which because Lacey was Portuguese or whatever. Mm-hmm. And then there's another one, Consuela Lomeli. She was apparently eight months pregnant when she was last seen in 2002 in Tulare, California. She apparently disappeared with three or four of her children. However, uh, there's you can't find any information on the case, apparently. The only place their names are mentioned at all are on the Charlie Project blog post comment section with no additional information. It appears that she was found alive, so the case doesn't even exist. So she's not even dead. And then Guadalupe Arreyes, I think is how you say it, uh, like Consuela above, was apparently eight months pregnant when she was last seen uh, November 26th of 2001 in Longview, Washington. However, this person, again, does not exist. So uh, there's a bunch of these. I just picked out ones that I was like, okay. You know what I'm saying? So like I said, there's a lot more listed, but needless to say at this point, it looks like the Scott is innocent camp is really grasping at straws here. I remember during the court case that the defense brought up Evelyn Hernandez. Mm -hmm. She was found in the Bay Area about six months before Lacey. Mm -hmm. And she was also found in the same like condition, um, which we don't really go into that here. But I mean, it was... Um, they're saying Rough. it was eye for an eye yeah. uh, in the same sense and that she was also eight months pregnant. Mm-hmm. So, but, and that's what they were, they were saying that the prosecution did not search out every credible lead that right. it was just, they had their target on Scott and then that was it. The defense also brought up that there was a satanic group that had, had abducted a girl in Peterson's neighborhood mm-hmm. prior to Lacey's disappearance. Uh, they had raped her and performed a satanic ritual on her 
and they claimed that they were going to commit a murder on Christmas and you would hear about it in the papers. Mm -hmm. So they were trying to push the fact that once again, all the prosecution was doing was that they were just had their target set on Scott and they Mm -hmm. threw away every piece of evidence that pointed to anybody else. Right. And so when they found Lacey and Connor's body, Mm -hmm. there was like a little piece of red tape around uh, Connor's neck. The prosecution tried to say that that was he had caught it, you know, just in the uh, in the waters. Yeah. And the defense was like, actually, that could have been a satanic cult thing. And so. So, yeah, the Evelyn Hernandez case is the closest to any sort of weird situation. Yeah. Like similar situation. It's very similar. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate, too, because it didn't get a lot of attention. It was happening around the same time. Yeah. Unfortunately, it didn't get a lot of attention because it was she was having uh, a baby with a married man. Right. And, and she was of Hispanic descent. And I, what's interesting, too, in that case, is I, I, from what I recall reading, is that the police had assumed that maybe her husband had been involved in her disappearance because of or her boyfriend. Yeah. It, because yeah. it was a relationship thing or whatever. Yeah, exactly. So there was like, but it's still, yeah, you should look into it. I mean, I don't know. But the other ones that they're listing are, no, they're, like I yeah, said, yeah, it's, they're it's, really it's, grasping at straws there. Yeah. And it's, it's, you know, I don't know. It's 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 unfortunate for Evelyn Hernandez and everything like that. And, you know, they should look into that. But I don't I, I do believe that the police probably looked into that and it just I don't know. There wasn't but, any ties to it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who knows, man? It's the the point being, though, is that the uh, evidence on the prosecution side for Scott Peterson was pretty scant as well, though. And see, that was one of the big things with the jury as well, because the defense attorney what was his name? Garagos? Yeah, Garagos. He was Garagos. the same guy that represented Michael Jackson during yeah. the child molestation trials. Uh, he represented Winona Ryder, I mm-hmm. think, when yeah, with yeah. all the shoplifting. shoplifting and stuff like that. He came in and made this big speech to the jury right off the rip, and he was like, I'm going to produce witnesses that are going to mm-hmm. discredit everything that the prosecution says. I mean, like he went on and on and on. Yeah. But when it came trial time, the prosecution spent i think it was close to six months Mm -hmm. prosecuting scott yeah the defense went for six days yeah and they didn't really call that many people to the stand and it was really thin everything that they were saying they were more trying to discredit what they said versus providing their own evidence that they had talked about at the jump that they were going to do well the problem too is the prosecution didn't have much in the way of like you know definable forensic evidence at all because they initially talked about like oh there were flower pots that were at the house that he had and they were found at the same like dive site where they thought the body was dropped off uh-huh. and yeah, they're flower pots you know what i'm saying i guess you know but still yeah and then there was like a question about like some cement or something like that and how mm-hmm. he poured cement but that cement had been poured previously even to the point where nancy grace when they pointed it out she was kind of like huh well just breeze right past it and as we all know with nancy grace man all she needs is the thinnest little thing and oh she, yeah i will be all over mm-hmm. it I, I did hear a quote from her that made me laugh as they're talking about it now yeah uh, but she was like well of course they went for the dp on scott peterson <laughs> <laughs> that doesn't surprise me at all <laughs> devil penetration but in fact like i said a single hair was the only piece of forensic evidence that was identified the hair, matched through DNA comparison to hair from Lacey's hairbrush, was stuck to pliers found on Peterson's boat, which, I mean, they're married and they live together. I find my wife's hair in the weirdest places 
all the time. Everywhere. Sometimes in between my butt cheeks somehow. <laughs> like some sort of weird oh, magic on, trick. We know how. <laughs> like natural <laughs> butt floss. I swear to God, sometimes you're like, wait a second. You know, that's, I have like a wife's hair like in between my, my ass crack here. Uh, so the point I'm trying to make is that it isn't crazy to think that maybe one of Lacey's hairs just randomly ended up on one of Scott's tools. It's not crazy. Yeah, no, it's not. When they went back and interviewed everybody at the the boat dock, they said that she was there two days before with yeah. Scott. Yeah. And so, I mean, that's that's how it could have happened. Yeah. You know, one of their smoking guns was the um, they had this expert come in about the age of Connor. What they tried to do, what the defense tried to bring up was that the body that they found, they were able to age it out to mm -hmm. where the death had been on December 29th, mm -hmm. not on December 24th. It was right. like five days afterwards. And so when the prosecution got to cross-examine him, they were like, how can you be so sure that he was killed on the 29th and not on the 24th? Right. And he was like, well, I mean, Lacey called her friends on this day and told her that she was pregnant. So then I just backtracked it two weeks yeah. from there. So, I mean, I got to assume that the day that she called her friends was the day that. No. And they were like, really? That's what you're going with here. Yeah. And he was like. Y'all need to cut me some slack here. Like, y'all are treating me much more harshly than y'all have been with some of the other witnesses. He ended up imploding on the stand. Yeah. And, yeah, I mean, like... This well, I mean, think about it. The, the, by the time that they find the bodies, they've been in the ocean for... Six months at this point? Yeah, five months for uh, April. How can you possibly... There were things that I read about in there, like, so they're extremely disturbing, um, that you can glean certain things from, like, was there actual food in Connor's stomach at the time. It's, it's fucked up. But I don't think that any reasonable scientist or whatever could make an accurate claim in terms of the date. date. Of conception. Yeah, 24th yeah. to the 29th, whatever. Because she wasn't due until February anyway. Yeah. So it's... I, dude, I don't know. I mean, like I said, mostly... Pretty much, you know, everything else that was convicting Scott Peterson was what a Psychology Today writer described as, quote, demeanor evidence. That is to say, people thought he acted like someone who was guilty. But what does that mean, really? Like we talked about earlier, like not everybody acts the same way in a situation, like even in the face of tragedy. Some people I don't I mean, when I was younger, I had the hardest time ever not laughing at funerals because I was incredibly uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? Like it was tough for me like to be in uncomfortable situations because my immediate like almost Default. defensive response yeah. was to just laugh at stuff. Sure. And, and it's it's horrible. It makes it worse. So anxiety is worse. You know, you know, I, I don't know, dude. Just, long story short, do I think that Scott Peterson killed Lacey? Yeah, probably. Yeah. You know, if I were placing a bet and I could get a real answer, I would bet on yes, he did it. Does that mean that I'd be willing to convict him in a court of law that I believe he is guilty beyond a reasonable doubt? That's a bit tougher. Yeah. I mean, there is room for doubt in there considering the lack of forensic evidence and the questionable timelines, etc. I honestly don't know what I would do as a juror with one exception. And that is, I definitely would not push for the death penalty with all things considered. Yeah. There is an inkling of a chance that Scott Peterson might actually be innocent. Mm -hmm. a very small one. Yeah. But that's what's called Blackstone's principle in the legal field is that you'd rather let 10 guilty men go uh, as opposed to convict one, one innocent man. One innocent man. man. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, we're not sentencing Scott Peterson to death on our show today. We're just giving him an asshole score. So with that in mind, what are you scoring Scott Peterson, buddy? All right. So I've got to look at, there is a lot of reasonable doubt in a sense, because there is no smoking gun. Mm -hmm. But I look at his behavior three weeks before yeah. and three weeks after. Yep. All right. 
one of the most compelling pieces of evidence that they showed the jurors that I think really shaped their opinions was that they had a picture of Scott with Amber, his girlfriend, mm-hmm. at a Christmas party on December 9th. Yeah. They're both smiling, holding hands, yep. and look like the happy couple that are in love. Yeah. There's also a picture from Lacey from that same night at a different Christmas party. And she's sitting there by herself. Mm-hmm. With an eight-month pregnant belly. Yeah. And she has no man standing at her side. Mm -hmm. All right. So, you know, that was pretty damning in a sense that this guy was going to not be with his wife literally a month or two before the baby's born. Mm -hmm. He's with somebody else. He tells Amber that this is going to be his first Christmas without his wife. Yeah. All right. And there's no talks of divorce or anything like that. Then she just apparently just goes missing. Like three weeks later, like, what is he like? Some kind of like psychic or something like that. He knew that she was going to disappear. All right. Let's even take that out of the equation. Let's assume that he had no clue anything was going to happen and that Lacey disappears. He's calling Amber a week later from his wife's visual. And he's like, I'm in Paris. Yeah. I'm missing you. Yeah. I wish you were here with me on New Year's Eve. Mm-hmm. And he's sitting there calling her like uh, multiple times. They have all the, the this was some of the most damning evidence. Oh, yeah, it's gross. Court, it's gross. Where dude. he's like, you are amazing. Yeah. I wish I could think of a better word than amazing because you are special. There, I mean, like there's all yeah. these different court recorded conversations where this is going on. So, I mean, like I look at it from that aspect. I think he's guilty as hell. Yeah. I think he took her out into the bay mm-hmm. and got rid of her. And, you know, ironically, he went to San Quentin. Yeah. Does anybody know what San Quentin overlooks? The Bay Area. So, mm-hmm. like, he's actually, like, looking out at the bay where yeah. he allegedly yeah. dumped his wife. So, I mean, that is just poetic yeah, justice it is. to me in my, yeah. uh, in my mind. But to uh, sum everything up. Man, I started this guy off at a 7.0 and I've got to crank him up um, from everything that I've heard. I mean, I think he did it. And just based on what he did, the way that he did it and everything that he did before and after, I'm going to jump him up to a 7.75 as a final asshole score. Yeah. No, I I agree uh, with pretty much everything he said. I do feel like if it's a gut feeling then I think he did it. I There's a different thing that a lot of people, I guess, have a hard time like discerning, which is, you know, legal culpability. Like, is it, you know, when you're a juror, a jury, and they ask you, the whole thing is you're supposed to convict when there's like beyond reasonable doubt. I don't feel like the prosecution brought the greatest case in the world. I still feel like he did it. I certainly wouldn't have gone with the death penalty. No, I would have gone with life without the possibility of parole. Yeah. Is what I would have shot for. I would have, yeah. I mean, because if there is no smoking mm -hmm. gun, if there is, you know, there isn't proof beyond a reasonable doubt, I don't think that you can condemn somebody to die. Yeah. But you can take their life from them in a sense. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And then you give them the opportunity to appeal and find new evidence and stuff like that. So I think he did it. You know, if you look at all the weird things in there, like, of course, you have his behavior and stuff like that. Uh, but also, like, even just lying about, oh, I was going to play golf. Oh, well, no, actually, I was going to test my boat out. And uh, it was a 90-mile drive to so be out there in 90 minutes. And then uh, I came Where's back. the fruit basket? Yeah. All where's right, where's the, the fruit basket? Where's the fruit basket? And then, again, just the sleaziness of affairs in general are pretty sleazy anyways. You should be kind enough to the person that you're supposed to love to... Like, leave them if you don't want to be with them. Or at least have a a discussion about an open relationship, if that's what it's coming to. But it's a different ballgame 
to continue to do this while your wife is missing. And like you uh, alluded to, we're talking about the, the conversations he was having with Amber Fry. It's just disgusting. So in my mind, yeah, I, I started him with a seven. Uh, I think Kilder, you know, on the relative scale of what we deal with, I think I'm going to give him an eight. I'll give him an 8.25. All right. Yeah, I like that. I feel like that's a pretty good spot for him. Well, all right. With a 7.75 from Buddy and an 8.25 from Mikey, Scott Peterson's final asshole score is an 8.0. Yeah. Seems reasonable. Yeah. All right. Thanks for listening, and uh, we hope you enjoyed this episode of Asshole Court. If you like what you hear, uh, tell other people to check us out as well. You can find all of our shows on your podcast platforms and on social media at AHC Podcast. We'll be back in a couple weeks with another episode of Asshole Court. So until next time, stay safe, show people love, and most importantly, don't be an asshole. This is Asshole Asshole Court. Court.